Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends. It's the weekly podcast brought to you by the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Freshly returned from the intro of the Suzuki GSX S1000 GX Plus, senior editor Nick DeSena gives us his thoughts on the new crossover bike from the Big S. This is another sport touring variation on the fantastic inline-four GSX S1000 upright naked. And although Suzuki have the really great GT Plus in the lineup, this new GX Plus now comes with semi-active electronic suspension and a comfortable riding position. So, if you're in the market for a sport tourer, the GX Plus is definitely another one to add to your list of possibles. In our second segment this week, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with Laverda engineer Keith Nairn. Based in Scotland, Keith is a highly specialised engine builder and tuner of these legendary Italian muscle machines. If you have need of Keith's expertise, you'll be able to contact him through his website at laverdascozia.co.uk. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode and, of course, have a fabulous holiday season. The 2024 Suzuki GSX S1000 GX Plus. So, where whereabouts did you test it, and and uh, and what were your thoughts? I mean, how how different is it from the other versions of the GSX S1000? Yeah, well, this is Suzuki's crossover, quote unquote. A motorcycle that's sort of splitting the divide between the GSX S1000 GT and the V-Strom 1050 motorcycles. The reason it's called a crossover is because it's crossing over between your traditional sport touring platforms and something that's more ADV related, like the V-Strom. Now, really, in practice, it's still a 17-inch wheeled motorcycle. It's still focused on, on road use only. And it borrows its sort of visual cues from, you know, a lot of the other ADV uh, motorcycles on the market. And so it falls into a sort of niche category within the sport touring segment that has bikes in it, like the BMW S1000XR, the Kawasaki Versus 1000 SE LT Plus, and the Yamaha Tracer 9 GT Plus. So it's in that realm. Right. As far as changes there are a handful of changes i want to say quite a few but most of what you're going to be noticing right out of the gate is its looks um you know it has a more substantial fairing it looks a little bit more adv oriented it's it's a bit sharper it's a bit um i guess i would say it's more in line with the times in a way and and those are the the changes that you just see from the onset as far as you know, everything else, we'll get into that in just a second here, but it does truly bridge that gap between your traditional sport touring platforms and something that's a little bit more ADV related without actually taking that to a functional level where it could achieve off-road use, because that's not what we're going after here. Yeah, my, my first thought as soon as I saw it was this is a, a competitor aimed directly at the BMW XR and like you say, the Kawasaki Versus. So um so it's a pretty tried and true kind of platform and uh i'm interested in hearing what suzuki's nuances are that perhaps make it a little different 
Um, in terms of obviously starting at the logical point point, the uh, you know the motor, um, have they really changed the motor from any of the other um, you know GSXS one thousand based bikes? No, it's still the same same motor that's based originally on the K five GSXR one thousand superbike engine. So that goes back all the way to two thousand five ish um it makes it a roughly you know it, it you know this thing has had around an 18 year tour of duty which in the motorcycle world is pretty unheard of there's only a handful of other other bikes on market that have had the same engine for such an extended period of time and you know it's it's almost begrudgingly um you know said by me that the bike is that the engine itself is still totally viable in the sense that it produces 151 horsepower 78 foot pounds of torque and that's cited from uh suzuki uh, europe and you know it's it's an interesting motor because it, it does create some good torque and really i would say its highlight features are more mid-ranged and top end power um and you know it's delivered in a very very creamy and linear power delivery. So it's not this sort of peaky, um, right. Traditional inline four thing, you know, they've done a lot of different things over the years to keep tweaking this engine and make it, you know, inch along with various emissions compliance updates. And in that regard, it is kind of crazy that it's able to survive this long. Um, that said, you know, it still it still has a place in the market um and you can kind of see why suzuki really leans on it as one of their favorites in terms of the power plants that they use for a variety of bikes because it's it powers the gxs family of motorcycles not the current gsxr bikes that are only available in a handful of markets now because they no longer pass euro 5 compliance um but that's an aside so what you got is your classic old school superbike motor. And there's still some charm in that for sure. It's got, you know, good power delivery. It's very creamy and linear, like I mentioned before. Great gearbox attached to it. And, you know, it also has a modern up-down quick shifter that really punches outside its weight class. And in terms of the, the MSRP that you might associate with something that's that smooth. You know, we've tested other bikes that command a much higher MSRP and they can't deliver on that that same promise so that's really cool um you know that said when you get into this engine and you you actually access its mid-range and its top end power it does does give you a thrill that's really indicative of that old school inline four thing where you're just winding out the engine you're hearing that big throaty howl from those four cylinders and it is pretty awesome overall um you know one of the main things that that critics will bring up is, you know, how come we're not using the current generation VVT equipped GSXR power plant that was launched in 2017? Because obviously that's a newer engine and consumers are, you know, naturally going to gravitate towards something that is a little bit newer. It just has a, uh, you know, fresher expiration date stamped on the package, we'll say. And the, the reason for that is because the current gen GSX-R engine is a much shorter stroke engine. So what happens in with that type of architecture is that it pushes a lot of its power towards the top end 
of that motor. And for something that is racetrack oriented, that's not really a big deal because you're always going to be in the upper upper regions of the RPM band. The problem with that is when you're talking about street riding, you're usually in the opposite end of the, the rev range. So something like this, this uh, tried and true uh, 999cc inline four engine that dates back to 2005 makes a lot more sense. And again, that's just kind of another little tick in the box of why Suzuki keeps using this engine for a variety of its of its motorcycles at this point. So, yeah, the, the engine's still good and, uh, you know, definitely has has its charm. And when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's direct competitors like the BMW S1000XR, the Versys, uh, those are inline four powered bikes. Uh, and then you have the Yamaha Tracer, that's a, uh, inline three or triple. Um, you know, inline fours, I wouldn't say necessarily that they're, they've fallen out of favor in the past few years, but I'd say we've diversified what the market, um, is really using a lot of the time. So, you know, KTM using their, their V-twin power plants, Ducati and Aprilia with V-fours and V-twins, um, you know, there's a lot on the market now in terms of what we're seeing in, in sport touring platforms. And an inline four engine is, I, I want to say it's quite a throwback, but when you get on it and you rev the thing out, it makes a sound that you don't really get to hear too often these days, just not quite the same way. Um, so it's a bit interesting. Suzuki have done something interesting because they've, they've, they've brought out their, you know, the 800cc parallel twin. So there, there wouldn't seem an awful lot of point to me in simply punching that motor out to 1,000cc. So to, to use 1,000cc4, I think it, it addresses both markets. If you prefer the sort of the slightly more modern generation motor, well, okay, you know, you've got the 800 range to look at. Um, if you like the old school four and I happen to love, there's nothing like a screaming four to me. And in fact, I had the original K5 Jixa, which I had for years and I loved it. And there is nothing wrong with that motor. And I don't see how Suzuki could have done a lot more to it. Like you say, I mean, okay, so you go with the, you know, the new, the, the, the later generation Jixa motor, but what's the point? Okay. Who needs a 14 and a half thousand RPM you know, red line on this kind of motorcycle you don't the, the the k5 architecture is perfect for for this kind of motor and for this kind of bike and if you don't like a screaming four that produces tons of horsepower and does everything well buy a different a different version like i say you've got lots lots to choose from it, it's still a viable engine and to be fair i would say this is the standout trait of this bike because you you get on the bike and you have that booming inline four definitely charms your senses whether you feel it should be newer or not and 150 horses you know 78 foot pounds of torque you're you're doing pretty good in terms of the horsepower yes of course there are you know sport touring platforms from european brands that make boatloads more horsepower that said in my opinion when you're talking about anything that's really claiming that 150 horsepower mark Anything beyond that is kind of getting a little bit superfluous. Do I want 200 horsepower sport touring bikes? Yes, I do. Not for any particular reason. I just want them. And, uh, you know, that's just kind of how it is with motorcyclists. <laughs> um, but 
you've got plenty of power on on tap and you know more than enough to get a felony speeding ticket and or you know make some friends with your your local uh reputates. so everything's good in that regard you know and uh yeah that's kind of the engine the engine in a, in a nutshell presumably the chassis is new um no 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 so yeah same frame and swing arm and everything else okay as the the gt but before we get into that we do need to cover the ride modes a little bit uh because they they have stepped up their game with the gx plus um so there's only a few motorcycles within the suzuki range that actually use an imu while other brands have really embraced imu technology for many years at this point suzuki has definitely been slow to the punch to uh integrate that that feature into their bikes. The first that I'm aware of would have been the 2017 GSXR 1000. Um, it had a six axis IMU. Uh, it's a little confusing because in their original literature, they cite it as a three axis IMU with accelerometers. And if you translate that to common nomenclature, it's a six axis IMU. So now we're we we see cornering abs lean angle sense of traction control and it all coincides with the same nomenclature and basic electronic packaging that we've seen on the gt and also on the naked bike as well so you have different ride modes they're broken down into a b and c suzuki calls them active basic and comfort um, I feel like they do need to work on that nomenclature a little bit because calling your ride mode basic is, uh, at least to an American sensibility, it reminds me of uh, blonde teenagers that wear Ugg boots and hang out at Starbucks. It's very, <laughs> very weird. I would say those are just marketing terms. They've got ABC modes and some some smart aleck has said, okay, what would those stand for? <laughs> yeah, I think they just should have never identified what they actually stand for. I feel like ABC is clear enough. A ABC is clear enough, exactly. You know, A is your more aggressive mode. And like the GT, um, it's not snatchy. And this is a point that I do want to make clear. It just ramps up quite aggressively. And that can be a little bit interesting in slower and or tricky conditions. So that leaves us with B mode. That said, B mode could be a little bit more energetic. And then C is your, essentially your, your rain mode. Um, now within those three modes, you can adjust your semi-active suspension as well as your TC and shock preload settings. Um, you can't adjust cornering ABS modes. It's just a single preset mode. It does what it does. Now, the main takeaway, and to kind of go back to what you are mentioning before, is we have semi-active Showa suspension. It's the first time that Suzuki has ever used semi-active suspension. Again, kind of catching up with uh, the Joneses, so to speak. And it's also got a bit more travel. So <clears throat> compared to the GT, it's 1.2 inches longer in the front and about uh, 0 0.8 inch, inches longer in the rear compared to the GT and the GT Plus. Um, and that's only, it's like just shy of a half inch uh, shorter than the full-fledged ADV platform known as the V-Strong 1050. So it's a pretty leggy machine, which means it's a little bit taller as well, if you can imagine that. Sure. And 
you know, it's the same frame and swing arm as the GT, and that's all derived from the GSX S1000, which is inspired by the GSXR. It is not a direct, you know, copy and paste job from the Jixer, which a lot of people have always kind of assumed, but they are actually different. Now, within your semi-active modes, because to me, when we talk about the GX Plus in particular, the headliner of this bike is that it has semi-active show of suspension. Okay, cool. So it works in pretty much the same fashion that all of your other semi-active suspension on the market, you know, behaves. It's pretty much in line with that. You have three different preset damping modes, soft, medium, hard, and that's coupled with four different uh, shock preload modes. And then you also have um, an, a self-leveling auto mode. And, you know, you have passenger, solo, passenger with the luggage, yada, yada, yada. Okay, cool. Whatever. And then fork, fork preload is uh, adjusted the old-fashioned way with just some clickers. Okay. So the kind of the thing to sort of understand about the suspension is that first off Suzuki and Showa have done a really good job with developing the damping rates and the damping algorithms. What I mean by that is if we think about older semi-active suspension systems um sometimes they could change rates in the middle of a corner and they were a little bit unpredictable. So as your putting input into the chassis, whether that's on the brakes or, you know, accelerating or just going through the corner, it tends to stick within the confines that you've already set up, you know, so if it's hard, it's going to be fairly hard. If it's medium, it's going to be medium, soft, soft, whatever. It doesn't kind of wallow in between those definitions. Okay. They've done a good job there. The sort of, uh, asterisks that we need to apply to this suspension in particular is that a lot of people will assume the self-leveling auto mode is the one that they should jump into because it's called auto so it adjusts your preload automatically as you sit on the bike measures your weight because it has stroke sensors it's able to compensate for all of that and it also influences the damping as well even when you're in you know say you're in hard medium or soft it influences those those settings um, it, it's easy for a consumer to jump on the bike and go, okay, that's the mode I'm going to use. That's a set it and forget it mode. What we experienced out on the Portuguese roads, we were in a place called Cash Guys. It's a really beautiful kind of beachside community. And then we ventured off into the mountains and did some other stuff. The auto mode tends to make the bikes squat a little bit. So it's not adding enough preload to really support, um, the rider weight. So after communicating that with our, you know, helpful Suzuki staff, we just started cranking up the preload in the rear and kind of taking matters into your own hands because you do have a user mode and that allows you to customize things to a, you know, a much more fine point. So once we add some, added some preload into the shock, kind of started biasing the weight a little bit more forward. That's when that traditional, uh, Jixus 1000 naked bike and Jixus 1000 GT sport touring bike personality started coming back into the picture because as it stood just relying on the auto mode, you know, it created a bike that handled pretty ponderously and lacked a lot of front end confidence. Right. So that yeah. is not ideal. Yeah. Not enough weight on the front for sure. Yeah. 
and so you know the the kind of dumb track day bro mentality to fix that is well let's jack up the rear and see what happens and <laughs> you know it it, it works it, it works i'm telling you it works I it, did it. It, it it can work there's limitations but it sometimes that's the ticket okay so um you know once you we dialed things in then suddenly okay this is what i expected from this uh twin spar frame and really, you know, then you can start messing with, you know, damping rates a little bit more. Uh, when it was all said and done, I think I settled with medium damping. It's set in the user mode, cranked up a little bit beyond that because you have a plus minus three uh, for each individual damping setting. And then with the preload put up in the highest setting, so even with luggage. Um, okay, cool. And, and that definitely gave me a bike that handled much better. Now the thing sits at about 511 pounds without bags. And that's not the heaviest in the sport touring spectrum by any stretch of the imagination, but it is no longer the lightest. You know, the, the Tracer 9 GT beats it out by a handful of pounds. And I think that's with bags as well. Um, gotta double check that, but it's definitely lighter regardless. Um, I think it comes in at like 490, 92 or 98 one of the two but it but it is lighter um one of the main things that's really holding the 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 suzuki back is that they continue to use dunlop sport max road sport 2 rubber which is on the gt it's on the naked bike um it's on some of their other bikes too and it uses a really uh, i want to say really no actually yeah really uh flat profile rear tire so 190 50 and while the suzuki's no dog it definitely doesn't have cat like reflexes either and it I, I would i would say it's that rear profile tire it, it, it's just or the, the rear tire profile sorry is not doing it any favors you know we have really moved on from a 50 profile I mean, they're, they're still using the 50 profile on the back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's they need to get away from it. Um, there's just no ends if or buts about it. 50 profiles haven't been a thing since what 2012, 10. Yeah. Maybe earlier. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a while. And, you know, when you look at the sport tire or sport touring tire spectrum, there's a lot of good product on the market, even within the Dunlop family of offerings, if you want to go in that direction too. So, really, we did ask them about this and it comes down to internal testing and internal certification. You know, that's a tire that Suzuki has certified and they've approved it for use within the brand and they just haven't tested anything outside of that now. And in my opinion, they need to move on with it. So buyers, you get this thing, put some modern tires on it and yeah, it'll perform a lot better. There's also the second component to those tires where the grip is just not really great um you know it, they perform average in the best of conditions and when you add in kind of slick portuguese roads they're not the best um and that's something that we've noticed even testing various jixis bikes in california as well and really it's indicative of the age of this tire if we were you know going back to something a model that that is 
is as old as this, we would have the same regards. It just happens to be a Dunlop. If it were a Pirelli from that generation, we'd say the same thing. If it were a Michelin of that generation, it would be the same complaints too. It's just Suzuki needs to upgrade the tire. That's that's how it is. And, you know, kind of moving forward on that. But, okay, so that's sort of upgrade one. Tires, you know, they're going to run out at some point. You're going to change them, just get something better. And it's definitely going to improve the bike. How much? I can't really say, but it's it's going to unlock some hidden potential when you bump up to a 55 profile for sure. Um, you know, my sort of experience with some of these tires, something like the Michelin Road Series, the, now we're up to the Road 6, that would be a perfect tire for this bike. Um, you know, if not any of the other offerings from probably or Dunlop or Bridgestone or... Metzler. Yeah. I mean, and, and you, the big four, big five kind of tire companies, because Metzler and Pirelli are sort of the same brand, but you know, anyway. Um, yeah. So we've talked about, you know, suspension, the suspension definitely works. It takes a little bit of fiddling. And I would say that Suzuki can be proud of the damping rates, which when you're talking about semi-active suspension, historically, it has been the thing that a lot of brands struggled with and they got it right out of the gate. I do think the baseline settings for their auto modes need to be looked at a second time, but you know, whatever. Okay. It's workable. And I do think it prevents a, or it presents a, a, a value in the sense that the ride quality is pretty superb when you, we start dialing things in now to illustrate that there is a good range of adjustment, you can crank everything to the max and make the bike absolutely terrible. I mean, you can turn <laughs> it into a skateboard and okay. it's not good. <laughs> or you can soften it to the point where it feels like some sort of uh, godforsaken pool noodle. But, <laughs> you know, so there is a range there. Even, you know, when you say plus minus three, you're like, oh, well, it's not too many clicks of whatever there's a enough combinations to where you can figure something out you know depending on your use case whether you're carrying a passenger luggage you know luggage with actual you know stuff in the luggage etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know i i'm pretty firm on the on the idea that that people will be to will be able to figure it out but it does require a little bit of fiddling and that caveat can be applied to most motorcycles look you got to set up suspension unless you just get lucky and it's golden for you right out of the gate, but you got to do a little bit of tweaking to get things right. And the sort of saving grace of semi-active suspension is that you don't really have to do any tweaking without getting out of the saddle. So that's kind of cool. But ultimately what I'm hearing is that there's a lot of adjustment available. And if you actually make the effort to get the adjustment, right, then you end up with a really sweet handling bike. Yeah. Kind of. There's there's still work to be had because those tires are definitely holding it back. And, you know, definitely holding it back. You know, it's interesting because I would say the, the suspension is definitely a boon. Those tires are, uh, you know, the black spot and the, what's messing up what could be a very good recipe for handling. So what's the bike like as tested on the standard tires? Was it acceptable? I mean, was it a a decent bike that you enjoyed riding and that that did well or did okay or 
have the tires really spoiled the bike and you you're going to need to test it again with aftermarket tires on no 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 i mean we got a good idea of what the bike can do you know with the tires it's just it's obviously being held back by those tires you know the the 50 profile is not it's it's really not allowing that that snappy turn in that you you generally would want um and then beyond that the grip is uh you know it's not as good as say a more a more modern tire um so those are just the two things but you can separate grip and tire personalities just you know from suspension quality and suspension behavior because the ride quality itself is quite good like i said the damping okay that's something that really stood out to me is like okay there is an appreciable difference between soft medium and hard and while they're not worlds apart like when you go from soft it's just not you know insanely soft they're within a relativity okay within a decent range okay yeah, but there is a good range to work with as well. So, you know, you have some good adjustability and, you know, we've we've harped on the tires, but the reality is they just need to be updated. And, um, you know, any buyer that picks up the bike will run those tires out and they'll have the option of getting whatever they want after that. And, you know, it, it'll probably be something newer. Well, it'll have to be because they'll find whatever's on the shelves today. So, yeah. Right. Sure. Sure. So in terms of the rest of the platform, um, I, I think the big comparison is going to be with the GT Plus, which obviously is a, a, a different flavor of Sport Tourer. But essentially, we're talking similar motorcycles with, with, with a different hat on. So how would you rate this compared to something like that? Would you did you do you enjoy this bike? How how are the ergonomics? How's the how's the general ride quality? The the, the general feel of it? Yeah, the we're we're talking variations on a theme for the Jixis platform. Sure. Interestingly, I prefer this riding position over the GT Plus. The GT Plus utilizes what I'd consider to be a pretty straight up and down traditional old school sport touring riding position that is a little bit more sporty. So it cants you forward a bit more. The handlebars are a bit lower. It adds a little bit more weight to your wrist. The flip side to that and the positive flip side to that, to reinforce that statement, is that you're loading the front end a little bit more. So that bike probably handles and steers with a slight bit more urgency. You're probably putting a little bit more weight over the front end, getting a little bit more feedback out of the front end. Whereas the the GX Plus changes things up a little bit. Um, the, the handlebars are about two inches and in change scooted closer to you. So you're sat propped up a bit more. Um, they're also wider. So you have a bit more leverage. Uh, the longer travel suspension, that adds some height. So the, the seat height is boosted up to 33.3 inches on paper. But Suzuki has done a pretty fine job of narrowing the, the seat where the seat and tank seam is, as well as making it a bit flatter. So my 32-inch inseam is able to reach the deck. And then they've also lowered the foot pegs and extended the uh, seat-to-peg ratio. Essentially, it just eases your, your, uh, your knee bend. 
Now, the the main thing is is it it really does split the divide between traditional sport tour and ADV bike. It's not as upright and stuffy as an ADV bike, and you're certainly not going to stand on this thing. Um, you know, so that's not even a consideration. So the handlebars are not nearly as high, things like that. Okay, cool. Sure. Um, that said, I actually really prefer this riding position over the GT, mainly because it's just a bit more realistic in terms of the sport touring. You know, as as much as everyone's like, oh, you know, sport touring, you can definitely haul the mail, do that sort of thing. At the end of the day, you are going to be riding for a, a serious amount of time. And okay, that's that's cool. But this is a lot more neutral. It's just a bit more comfortable. Uh, well, not a bit more comfortable. It's just less risky. And so it's less taxing on the rider overall. Now, there is one sort of fly in the ointment with the rider triangle, and that's that the seat on the GX Plus is just, it, it tends to create some pressure points. And Suzuki does offer a $400 premium seat. Uh, it has red stitching. It's also a dual density foam with a heat resistant material on the top of it. So say if you leave your bike in the parking lot, just baking in the sun, you jump on the thing, it's not going to cook you. Um, and although this, the premium seat isn't dramatically different from the stock unit, it is quite a bit more comfortable. It doesn't really create those same pressure points and things like that. Um, you know, I would say that's kind of the way to go. Same with the tires. It's like, okay, tires, seat, whatever you got to do, you know, seats are pretty subjective, but, um, you know, it seemed to be a unanimous consensus between colleagues that the premium seat was, was a, a noticeable step up. Um, and yeah, that does bring us around to the wind protection and things like that. Cause obviously if you're going to be torn around, you're, you're going to want some wind protection. So, yeah. So on that note, um, you know, the, the new fairing, uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily larger than the GT plus. I think visually it's just a little bit more commanding because it it's a bit sharper. I really do like the aesthetic looks of it. I think this is probably one of the cooler Suzuki's that's come out in a handful of years. It's really in line with sort of the GSX 8S and things like that, um, which I do think have a an interesting look, but you know, that's all, you know, eye of the beholder stuff. It has LED lighting all around. Okay, cool. We're, we do not have cornering headlights, which is becoming a more prominent feature in this class of bike, but hey, whatever. Um, you know, uh, wind protection, kind of as you'd expect it for something like this. You know, sport touring bikes really don't do the full Monty massive windscreens that you'd see on full-fledged touring bikes. Because again, they need to be a little bit more svelte, a little bit more aerodynamic, things of that nature. The, the knock that you can give the GT Plus as well, well, the GT series, as well as the GX series, is that although this is an adjustable windscreen, it is not on the fly adjustable. So you actually have to pull over, unbolt the windscreen, move it, bolt it back up. So ostensibly, if you find your position and that works for you, cool. That said, on-the-fly windscreens have been pretty much a, a thing for many, many years at this point. There's really no excuse not to incorporate that sort of feature into your bike, uh, considering that every competitor that this bike has has that feature. So that's that's a bit, bit of a whiff on Suzuki's part. Um, you know, okay, whatever, fine. Now, kind of moving on, 
You do get hand guards as standard. Heated grips are optional. Um, I can't remember if there's a heated seat or not. I'd have to double check that. But overall, the takeaway from this part of the conversation is that the rider triangle for this platform, I'm all about it. Uh, definitely more so than the GT Plus, I would say, uh, especially just for your big highway slogs, which we we did quite a bit of on this ride. You know, we had two days in the saddle, so we did good Mexican stuff, some exploring. You know, got to see some cool countrysides, and then we did the uh, you know the the daily donkey work stuff. You know, riding through traffic and all that good stuff. So that's where that more neutral riding position really really comes into focus. You know, for me, it's like, okay, you can have your fun. You can definitely move around. It's not going to lock you into one place um, like you would on, say, a, a larger, more more uh, conventionally designed touring motorcycle. But when it comes to actually doing the touring, you'll be well-equipped for it. Yeah. Okay. So on the luggage note, we only received the GX+. Plus. And if you ask me, that's the bike that you should be getting. Now, other markets are going to see a base model GX, and the only things that will be separating the GX from the GX Plus is the fact that the GX comes without a center stand and the color-matched luggage. The GX Plus has those two features. Um, now, if you're buying a bike of this ilk, I would say a center stand and luggage are damn near mandatory uh, because really if I'm going to buy a bike like this, I'm going to want luggage and it, the thing does have a chain. So I do need to do some quick service every now and again, a center stand isn't a bad thing to have laying around. So, you know, for a sport touring bike, I'm, I'm all about those two features. And the fact that we only get the GX plus in the United States, well, that's pretty much how I would buy that bike anyway. So that's not, I'm not missing a whole lot from the the base model in that regard. Um, so we're all good there. Now, the, the, the thing that we do have to remember is in our story, we rode European bikes, which come in the really awesome Suzuki Blue, which has a particular name that I just don't care to look up at the moment. <laughs> but um, it's your traditional Suzuki Blue. Looks rad. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, we only get pearl matte shadow green. I'm kind of confused about this because <laughs> Suzuki is blue in the same way that Ferrari is red. Right. In the same way that Ducati is red or Suzuki was yellow like 35 years ago. Um, you know, each brand has their colors. So I'm just sort of miffed by why we wouldn't you know, get the cool blue color and we get this matte green color, which isn't bad, but it's like Suzuki is blue. Like <laughs> I want the blue one. Right. And it honestly looks good. Like the fit and finish is great. You know, the, the paint's great. And so I'm sitting there just like, it's not that the green one looks terrible or something. It's like <sighs> Suzuki's blue. Like, well, come on, what's going on? I don't, anyway. <laughs> Whatever. I'm not one to actually complain about colors. I, I rarely do this, but this is one of those things where I'm like, but you're blue. What I don't understand. So anyway, <laughs> you know, kind of wrapping it up on the brakes. We are using the same hardware from the GT. So those same observations that we noticed during the launch of the GT and then follow up stories from the 
you know, covering the GT, um, you know, we, we're still using that old school uh, axial Nissan master cylinder combined with some Brembo four piston calipers. The issue for me is not the fact that we're using rubber braided brake lines, which a lot of the Japanese manufacturers employ on a regular basis. Using steel braided brake lines would definitely improve brake feel all day and night. No issue there. I would say the culprit for the GT, the naked bike, and the GX um, in terms of the braking feel and the lack of feel is what I'm actually trying to cite here, is that Nissan master cylinder. If you were to upgrade that, you were to pick up a random, not that I'm promoting Brembo specifically, you could use Gale Speed or whoever else, just a different master cylinder, you are going to improve that braking feel by a, a factor of insert a number that you want to be dramatic with. Um, it's just going to give you better brake feel. And that's what's holding that bike back in terms of the brakes. Now, the rear brake, on the other hand, and combined with that more upright riding position, puts you in, in this like perfect spot to constantly use the rear brake. So you can help it, you know, help the bike tip in, you can correct lines, you can do all that good stuff. And it's very, very helpful. But when we're talking about a bike that's cresting, you know, $18,500, so it's not exactly far off from that 20K mark, we really need to start seeing better braking components here. And there's just no, no other way to talk about it. Because um, some of this stuff is is a bit dated, and you know you look at the competitors, and they're definitely using spiffier equipment, especially when you look at stuff like the BMW S1000XR. Um, that said, although Suzuki is definitely putting their sights on the BMW S1000XR in the United States, it's really tough to get a base model BMW S1000XR or base model BMW in general. Damn near impossible. Price point-wise, a spec'd out BMW S1000XR is actually going to be considerably more expensive than this bike, but its base MSRP is a lot cheaper. Um, it's a weird thing to cite as a journalist. I realize that, but it's a thing that BMW does in the U.S. market. They just don't bring base model bikes in, and it, unless you're racing and you're getting an S1000RR and you've worked with a dealer to get it in specifically for that purpose, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, so price point wise, the BMW is actually a lot more expensive and it can hide some of its, its up-spec components in that, that pricing. That said, the Yamaha and the Kawasaki have, uh, the, the Yamaha is significantly cheaper than this bike and the Kawasaki is just a little bit more expensive, but it still has, both of those bikes still have braking components that are arguably higher spec or if they aren't higher spec they still perform in a i would say a slightly better manner the yamaha is probably neck and neck because it a bit wooden in the, in the, the brake feel as well but stopping power is there for both bikes okay so that's basically this bike in a nutshell um again variations on a theme and there's some pretty big benefits for this bike in terms of its suspension and ride quality specifically and then the, the riding position over the GT. Now, if you think it can go off-road, let's go ahead and take that out of your mind because it is a 17-inch wheeled motorcycle. I would not advise that, although there are plenty of videos of people ripping Hayabusa's off-road with knobbies. More power to you. You do. You, I do not judge. 
I just would not participate myself. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, this is now Suzuki's most expensive motorcycle. And it's interesting because Suzuki has always really leaned into the fact that they they can produce a competitive product at a very competitive price. And right. now they're playing in that pool, that end of the pool that is getting up there. So, you know, we'll see how things go. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I think the suspension and the riding position definitely brings something to the party. Um, right. And whether that works for you or not, or you, you, you're totally sold on that sort of thing, you know, is what it is. But it does combine all those aspects with that classic old school inline four superbike engine. There's not too many bikes doing that on the market. Because when we think about the Cowie, the Versys is pretty tame, pretty vanilla. You know, it's a solid bike all around, but that engine was never, no. it never had the sport chops that this thing has. It doesn't have the same lineage. Uh, the Tracer is an inline triple, so it doesn't have as much motor, but that bike is, that's a solid bike right there. Right. Um, and then the BMW S1000XR is a bit of a different beast kind of altogether. It's uh, a lot more expensive. Yeah. A lot more expensive, but also a lot more cutthroat in terms of its power and things like that. Just oh. kind of a different animal. And the seating position is not comfortable at all. So I think what we need here is a proper old-fashioned comparison. Because um, uh, these bikes all have something on each other. Um, you right. know, they're definitely, everyone's got a pretty strong hand. And everyone's got something that could definitely make the other one look pretty bad. So that's that's got the makings of a good comparison right there. Okay. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's where we're at as of today. All right. Yeah, it's a it's a really nice looking bike. I mean, uh, it, it sounds like if uh, you know, with just a, uh, increasing the rear tire, um, you know, profile, just to put a little more weight on the front and and just to speed it up a bit. But really, it, it's uh, it's a, a good, solid motorcycle. I, um, I'd be interested to ride it. Yeah, the tire and the brakes, I would say that that's job one. And then you got yourself a pretty, pretty solid bike overall. Yeah, yeah, that, that motor is, uh, that motor's fun. I mean, old school though it is, it's a fun motor. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate the... Uh, the uh, the interesting insight into into this particular motorcycle. Yeah, of course. In our second segment this week, editor at large Neil Bailey chats with Laverda engineer Keith Nairn. Based in Scotland, Keith is a highly specialized engine builder and tuner of these legendary Italian muscle machines. If you have need of Keith's expertise, you'll be able to contact him through his website at laverdascotia.co.uk. Okay, welcome to Motors and Friends. I'm sitting here with Keith Nairn, coming to you from Howard, Scotland, in the west of Scotland, um, a little bit in between Glasgow and the Clyde. And Keith has been a Laverda expert restoration specialist for more than 30 years now. Um, and the last 16 years, he's been working full time on basically riding and restoring these beautiful old beasts um, from his home area in Scotland. So, Keith, kick us off. How did you get into motorcycling? And were you born and raised in Scotland? 
I was born in Scotland and mostly raised and schooled in Scotland. I went away down to England for my um, do my apprenticeship and stayed down there for quite a while. Lived in London for a while and migrated back up here sixteen years ago, something like that. Oh, okay. So you were in England for a big chunk of time. I was in England, yeah. I just quite like it down there. They got the weather, the matching shoes, quite nice. Um. So. How did you get into motorcycling? So we'll come back to your apprenticeship in the moment. Were you interested in motorcycles before you started your apprenticeship, or did it sort I don't of? Know how any of us get into it? It's like a calling. Um, guy across the road, guy across the road from my grandmother had a Norton Commando, a Candy Apple Red Commando, and as soon as he was out on the bike, I was there, and uh, he used to let me clean the spokes and whatever. And eventually, one day, I persuaded him to take me for a. A, a backy, a, a billion ride up the road. We did a hundred miles an hour. I don't forget it. How old would you have been? Maybe seven or eight years old, nine years old, something like that. So good, responsible neighbour taking the eight-year-old kid a hundred miles an hour on a Scottish road on a Norton. I think that's how things were in the seventies, wasn't it? We were a bit less concerned about stuff. So yeah, it was fine. Nobody died. Yeah, <laughs> nobody died, so that was all right. So. You're about seven, eight years old. So where did that um so did that just light the fire immediately or did it take a little No, it lit the fire immediately. I, I instantly stopped learning anything at school and just used to draw motorbikes on my school book. <laughs> so did you make it how old were you when you left school? Uh sixteen. I was sixteen when I left school. And then and that was in left. Scotland, yes. I was in Scotland, then I moved down south, I moved to England at sixteen. And then uh, I took in a formal old-fashioned engineering apprenticeship with uh, the electricity generating board. So your goal at that point was to be an engineer. Had, did, had you bought a motorcycle or ridden a motorcycle at this point? Or? I, yeah, I yeah, know. I had a few bikes, old field bikes and stuff. Uh, CG125, I got a BSA, B40 was my kind of first road bike. It was an ex, ex-military, like they used them as... as AFS, Auxiliary Fire Service bikes, but I turned uh, into a sort of AGS 7R lookalike. What um, what CC was that? 350. Ooh. So you presumably you'd had to pass your test on the CG125 to get a license for the bigger bike. Aye, right. no, it was 125s then, so I passed my test on a 125 and then got on a, a bigger bike. What was the uh, what was the impetus to buy an? I mean, what year would that BSA have been? The BSA was, uh, it was sixty something, sixty seven, sixty six, sixty seven, something like that. So what was the what was the motivation to buy, you know, an old British bike as opposed to something new and modern? Were you very mechanically minded, or I was mechanically minded and I was influenced by things like Easy Rider and Backstreet Heroes and T-shirts that said, I'd rather see my sister in a whorehouse than ride a Honda. So, <laughs> so did your sister find gainful employment in other directions? <laughs> Didn't that? Yes, not my, not my sister had quite a successful career in banking. Okay. Um, so there, there actually was a T-shirt, I'd rather see my sister in a whorehouse than ride a Honda. Yeah, I used to be able to buy them out of the back of Easy Ride or Backstreet Heroes or something. But I thought that was just, you know, that was the life for me. Right. I didn't take the easy path. I'd have been better off buying a nice little Honda than I could have got to work on time every day and whatever. 
Right, I suppose writing a BSA, which probably meant you never got to work, right? Well, I get there occasionally, yeah. yeah I get there occasionally. So you 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 did a year's engineering uh, apprenticeship down in England, but you didn't, I mean, obviously an apprenticeship was four years in those days. You didn't four stay years, there. I know. Yeah, the proper four-year craft apprenticeship, which was yeah, a fantastic ground, and then you know, I still fall back in it now. Did you did you stay the full four years? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought you said that you had just done a year. No, no, I did my full four years, and you were supposed to go work at a power station at the end of it, and I decided it wasn't for me, so I did a year in the power station, and then wandered off to walk the earth and have adventures. <laughs> what were you riding at the time when you did your year in the power station? Still on the BSA, or had you graduated? At the BSA, I probably had a Bonneville, Triumph Bonneville by then, oil and frame Bonneville, quite like them, I had a few of them, uh, various little CD200 Benleys and stuff for when the drive wasn't working. So, I mean, presumably you were getting, having all these old British bikes, you were probably picking up quite a lot of motorcycle maintenance skills and knowledge through this. Oh, you've kind of got to, well, one of them. Uh, you know, people often ask me, where did you learn to fix motorbikes? And it's like, well, I did it at sort of two o'clock one morning by the side of the road. You know, that's kind of how you learn to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you went off to wander off around the world and have adventures. What what did that look like for you? That was all right. Yeah, no, just, you know, various jobs I've, I've talked about. I did what, you know, I did what young men do, <laughs> I suppose. I mean, did, did you go overseas during that time period or was this all sort of in the UK? Mostly in the UK. I did a, a lot of European tour once it sort of settled into more, I don't know, um, lucrative work later on and had bigger, faster motorbikes. We we did a lot of European tour and a lot of dotting about here and there. I worked overseas on and off occasionally. And you were doing engineering at that time? Aye. Yeah, yeah, all kind of engineering based. I did sort of film and TV special effects for quite a while. I worked for the Science Museum in London for a good few years. Um, so they used to send me all over the world, making things and doing things. Interesting. So what, um, you when you say you were riding larger bikes um, around Europe at that time, what, what, what would those bikes have been? Presumably not a BSA B40. No, 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 no. The BSA wouldn't have got me to Dover, I don't think. No, uh, Laverdas, when I started getting into my Laverdas, um, you obviously travel a lot faster and further afield. So, what was your first Laverda? An old 3C. Uh, well, a bit of a 3C mongrel. Uh, a bit of a 3C mongrel, which I've still got. Kind of most of it lying about. I don't know if I'll ever see the, the light of day again, but uh, I know 3C, which I, of course I immediately turned into a Jota lookalike and uh, it drove everyone at maximum speed. Well, they were pretty fast old bikes back in the day. They actually were. Yeah, they were. I, mean, I mean, they were. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't back in the day. They were, they were, they were well obsolete by the time I got first started. Um, you know, you could go and buy GBZ 900s and GSXR 1100s and sorts of properly fast things. You know, I had a GPZ 900. Yeah, and they made they made things like the old 3CL. So, I mean, explain to us about the 3CL. That was kind of like the more the base model three cylinder liver, wasn't it? Low camshafts, flat bars. 
I know three C. The three C was I. I, I was a sort of low compression, um, soft cam. Uh, nice. They're actually a very nice bike. A lot of, like a lot of these things are. They were better before they were tuned. So yeah, it's quite a nice little thing. I, of course, I immediately put high compression pistons in it and big cams and loud exhaust. All them things you do. Yeah. So that was so basically you just. As you said, you just turned it into a Jota. Did you put the Jota? I Jotaized it, yeah. Yeah, I Jotaized it, which was, you know, it's, it's what everybody done. It's, it's like a lot of things now. They're getting, if you can find a nice original unmolested one, they're, they're, they're quite a lucky find, you know, because a lot of people Jotaized them. I'm sure in 10 years' time, people are going to be, you know, finding unmolested BMW R100s that have got the turn boppers or whatever it's people are doing with them. Oh, that's right, because they're turning them all into cafe races and barbers and stuff now. Yeah. So what yeah. year was that that you got your first 3CL? Do you remember the, the first year? Three, I was 22, 21, 22, something like that. We bought it out of um, accident compensation we got for crashing the BSA. <laughs> <laughs> what had happened on the BSA? Oh, the, the roundabout car. Um, usual ingredients, right? Usual ingredients, yeah, yeah, yeah. Roundabout car crash. In shitty English roads, wet, slippery things, roundabouts, cars. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just pick one, you know. We've all done it at least once. So, <laughs> so when you um, when you got the three CL and you're twenty two. Um, so that was what nineteen eighty something like that. It'd be late eighties, yeah. Yeah. Um, did you ever digress to another brand of motorcycle, or was that it? You hit, you found Laverda and you stayed there. No, I had the odd big jack bike here and there. Um, I had the odd big jack bike here and there. I've always had a BMW or some description about the place. Um, so yeah, no, I like I do like all kinds of motorbikes. Harley Davidson one. You you realize you're admitting to that in public, right? Well, this yeah, well you know, it's all right. It's quite cool. It was a shovel head, and I had a no fat chick sticker on it. But <laughs> oh, you could still do that sort of thing. <laughs> right, it's, it's a changing world now, right? It is, isn't it? I'm having trouble keeping up, to be honest with you. That's okay. Well, the, the maybe just a bit more horsepower on the Laverda, and you'll be okay. Aye. <laughs> so. When you so you you're going through jet bikes, Harley's. Um, there was a Norton at some point in your history. Was that when you came back up to Scotland? Yeah, no, I've got a Commando. The engine's just sat right here next to me. When did you when did you buy the Commando? Only about three or four years ago, I think. Oh, okay, so that wasn't something. Yeah, no, I'd always wanted a Commando. As I said earlier, it was the first motorbike I ever went on. My my my. Grandmother's neighbor, a lad that lived yeah, across yeah. the road, had a, a commando in it. Could have one of these things in it I had to scratch. So. so, you're riding your 3CL and you're going to Europe working as an engineer. Um, how did this career in working on Lavertas come about? Because it was about, about 30 years ago you started repairing. You them. Well, I mean, I use the word loosely, the thing that you do every day. Yes, the thing I do every day. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's just one of these things that you just sort of stumble into it. 
I'm quite good at mending them. Uh, word gets out that I'm good at mending them. People send you them to mend. Is that so? This was thirty years ago. People started sending you lavers. Well, no, no, I, I, I've been doing it as a sort of full time job. Well, I, I, I dilly dallied in and out of it, but probably I've been full time as a as my main employment for fifteen years. But that wasn't until you came back up to Scotland. But so prior to that, you were working a regular job, doing your regular life around motorcycles, and then fixing Lavertas on yeah. the side. Yeah, yeah, I'd always fix. I'd always, you know, take work on and make things for people, fix bikes for people. I've always done that. Um, I worked for a professional restoration company for a few years uh, way back. Um, were they, so were they an English company? English company? I a company called Robin James Engineering. Who are uh, still going now? They're well respected. Done all sorts from you know nineteen canteen wicker side cars right up to sort of modern well seventies bikes. So how long did you work for them, Keith? A couple of years I was down there. That was that was a nice place. I worked with some really good guys. Um, learned a lot of stuff. Uh, I learned a lot of stuff there. Just kind of old motorbikey stuff. Our foreman was a big Bellaset guy, um, and I'd never really cared for them, thought we were an old man's bike and he, he kind of re-educated me about Bella sets and, and lots of things, you know, I left there with a lot of knowledge. So you, so you've been kind of, you've been coming to this for quite a long time when you went full time with the Lavertas then? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it was probably my, my natural, it's where I was going to end up, I think. So you had the 3CL, did you, did you have other Lavertas while you were down in England? No, I didn't start sort of accumulating them until, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago when I started, I bought an RGS, uh, which really opened my horizons in a fantastic machine they are. And uh, I just went everywhere on that, about 250,000 miles on that. You have 250,000 miles on your, your RGS? Mm. Yeah. So that would have been a 120 degree crank, correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about when Laverta went from the old 180s to the 120s? Was that that was a good move for them, I guess? Well, I get asked that a lot, you know, what's your favorite and all that. And I, I was, they didn't all get around the table in 1982 at Laverta and go, right, guys, how are we going to make a worse bike? They, you know, they, they understood there was issues with the old stuff. There was, you know, they understood they had to move on. Uh, the, first, the, the very first triples were 120 degrees. The, the first triple they made was 120 degrees, but they, they had trouble controlling the, the, the rock and couple vibration because it's an asymmetric crank and it's heavy and it's wide and it's very difficult. They ended up, when they made the bikes, the 120 degree bikes in the end, they rubber mounted them and that sort of dealt with that. So that's how come they ended up with a 180 crank. I'm, I'm pretty much convinced that's what Push them in that direction. It's much easier to control a, a straight up and down vibration. You just put a big heavy frame around it. What year were what years were the one eighties? One eighties were from the start. So when they first started making triples, 71, 72, they made them they become production bikes, 72, 73. So they were all 180 degrees. They, they, that was decided. They were all 180 degrees. Right up to 81, I think, 82, the 120 Jota came out. And then everything after that became 
Even after that was 120 degrees. They were uh, 81-ish, um, making the last of the 180s. Uh, while they were making the first of the one twenties, so you, I think you could probably buy either an eighty one or eight. So you feel that that was a really big step forward. The RGS series. The RGS is a fantastic thing. They were, they were ten years too late. That's the only trouble with that. But they were, um, you know, the fabulous motorbike, the big, fast, strong, fine handling, comfy. You can just monster continents with them. You know, they're, they're proper old fashioned GT. Lovely thing, really. And then the very last in line was what the SFC. Yeah, not much care for them. They always remind me of some forty-year-old Doris down the disco, which looks good <laughs> after three pints. But when you get close to it, you think maybe you're a wee bit overdressed, love. You know. There we go. That's the line of the day. The forty-year-old Doris down the disco. So you get close, and she's a bit overdressed. Her, but I mean, didn't it have the bones of the RGS, the 120 new motor in the same frame? And so no, it did. It had all the, it had all the good ingredients, uh, the Corsair engine, it had all the nice bits in it. Um, but I think Liberta had sort of run out of money and credit at the time they were making them. I think if if I, th I think if Massimo Liberta had his way, they'd all have been courses. I don't think the SFC would have come about. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I wasn't there at the time, but I, I, it was. It's it's a bit of a kind of they're not great, you know. Nice, a good one is fast and, and, and a, a fine thing to ride, but the, the, the bike to have was the course of the one that came before it. Do you have a modern one? Personal Verda? Yeah. And my RGS. I've got a couple of RGSs. So that's the, 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 the I wouldn't have had a, a Zani bike, the, the, the last of them were. Oh, when they they re they came back out with an air cool parallel twin, didn't they? Yes, yeah, yeah, and they they were they were pretty shy. Really. Um, have you ever have you ever had anything to do with those, or do you just steer clear of that rubbish? I won't have one in the building. But <laughs> 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 to simply eat it, you know, you there's a sort of it's a, a mechanics thing. Uh, you don't want to be the last guy to touch one of them, so. Because everything henceforth is your fault. So I, I just don't have one in the building. So the big sign on the door with a cross through it to keep them out. No, no, I gave them a wide berth. They were no good. And no amount of work, care, love and attention is going to make them any good. No, no, they were strange. I didn't understand what that, that whole goal. So 16 years ago, then you moved back to Howard, where you are now, yes? Well, not Howard exactly, but not far from here. Yeah. I moved back to Glasgow to work for the BBC for a while. What were you doing for the BBC? I was making them a big television studio so they could broadcast the propaganda. Nice. So it's your fault then. <laughs> no, no, no. I only facilitated it. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> How long were you with the BBC for? A couple of three years. I, I, can, I, was, I was there building the studio and from there... I moved, sort of slipped back into doing special effects and, and visual effects for a few years. So it's kind of an interesting route from sort of engineering through to science museums and traveling the world to TV special effects. And now... I can sort of say, it's, it's banging metal and welding, really. It doesn't matter what, um, you know, how, how I'm applying it. It's, it's, it's machine and welding fabrication. So it's just all the basic the engineering skills you learned when you did your apprenticeship and just expanded yeah. out. Yeah. yeah, 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 and you just apply it. You just apply it wherever you go. It's quite good. It was interesting work. Um, it was definitely interesting work doing the 
doing the film stuff, TV stuff, science museum stuff was good. I always kind of migrate back towards motorbikes. But... Yeah, when did you actually go full time, sort of Laverda as you are now? About fifteen years ago. Okay, uh, but it re you weren't initially in the warehouse at your house. You were you had a place in Johnson. Is that correct? No, I had a place in I. I... What sort of prompted it? Work went a bit quiet on the on the on the special effects. I said to the guy I was working for, "Can I maybe just use a corner of the workshop? To, I've got a whole lot of people who want me to do motorbikes for them. Uh, I no problem." So he sort of rented me half the workshop, and then I kind of eased out into more of it, and then more of it, uh, and I got more and more work. So I went and found the premises um, and worked out of there for ten years, twelve years maybe. Uh, the, the lease came up in that, so I converted the barn in the, in the back garden. Oh, so your workshop now, the house was, that was a barn that came with the house. You didn't purpose build that. Well, that was full of cows just over a year ago. So. Oh, is that right? Mm. So you traded all the cows for Laverdas? No, they've gone to live somewhere else. <laughs> Cow heaven. Cow heaven. <laughs> well, that's pretty interesting. So, over those years, you go full time. So, I mean, obviously, you've developed a worldwide reputation. I mean, you know, specialties for you would be what your crankshafts, your rods, the way you balance and polish everything. Is that is that sort of more what you're known for in Laverda, or just it's engine work? Yeah, I, I, I do make a nice engine, and uh, not everybody really does. Because you, you know, you were saying, you know, there's probably really only a handful of people left in the world now that are actually doing Lavertas or really know what they're doing with Lavertas. Is that correct? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not many. I mean, in fairness, there's not many bikes. Uh, there's not many people that either have the ability or can be bothered to do it. Uh, they're, they're awkward things to work on. They weren't particularly well made. So and I've got a couple of them. Um, I'm doing a couple of Z1 engines at the minute for just just customers for just people who want me to do their engine and they're they're beautiful in comparison they're beautiful is that because the Italians were just so inconsistent with what they used in them I think it's because they were drunk yeah I could see that or they were too busy being at dinner or too busy being at dinner but you know you often take one apart and go this is really the work of a drunk man um they were okay. The Italians were, I don't know, I, I worked on Italian cars as well. Uh, they've got a kind of a funny way of doing things. They weren't very good. Laveras were never production engineered. So they weren't really, they weren't made in a way that makes them easy to wake. And they weren't made in a way that makes them easy to look after or maintain. And they weren't made in a way that makes them difficult to dealers to fuck up uh, and, and if you look inside a, co a contemporary Kawasaki or a Honda or a Suzuki they had all of that in mind they're very difficult to put together wrong because everything's doweled and numbered it all clips together and it's all you know it's, it's, it's generally much nicer machined and it's generally made of better material anybody who goes on about jack crap doesn't really know it doesn't really understand you know how things are they're not they're very good but they got no whatever it is that makes us buy Italian things. <laughs> right. But 
And the converse of that is you get inside these Laverta engines. So every time you get one, there's always some sort of different problems with it. Is that right? It's room for improvement. There's always problems. And they say 30 odd years I've been mucking about with them. And people bring me things uh, that are broken and present. And I go, oh, I've never seen that before. You know? They, 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 can, they, they can be broken in some really quite unique ways, which is a, which is a reflection on, on how they were made. I think they were all a bit unique when they were made. Right. And how many Lovotas do you have at, in your place at the moment? Because I mean, I, I lost count after what, 15? I've, I've got no idea, honestly. I, I really don't know, 15 or 20. Yeah, there's quite a good number in there, right? Hmm. Yeah, I'd rather see less, which means they're all repaired. But you know, I don't know. It's yes, it's quite. It's, it can be quite time consuming to get through them. Do you find you you tend to be stacked up with work because people find you out and they bring these bikes to you and they take quite a long time to fix? Always, always. And I, I, I can always. I'm thinking that if I could just do engines, if I could just do engines, I could. It's a lot more straightforward. It doesn't matter how buggered they are. They all more or less need the same. Uh, but it's when you get the bikes, the, the whole bike, and uh, and it's it's been through you know 30, 40 years of clumsy hands and hand-fisted repair and this that and everything, and absolutely everything needs mending. Absolutely everything on it needs some sort of remedial work, something doing to it. And they just they just steal time off you. They're, they're unbelievably time intense to get fixed because nothing really fits. You know, everything's got to be made, fettled, sorted, bent, adjusted. So they just they just rob time of So talk me through your workshop with all of the tooling and the machining, because I mean you're very, very well, I mean, amazingly well set up for to be able to repair these things. Gotta do everything except um paint and chrome, powder coat. Uh everything else I do in-house. I do all my own engineering work, all my own rebores going and crank work. Head work. I've got Saturday cylinder head equipment. I do my own vapor blasting. So everything's done in house, uh, which is you can assure quality that way. And I'm not at anybody's. I'm. I'm I, you're not at anybody's mercy. Uh, you know, I, I have I have pistons made, but I'm less inclined to sell pistons to the public. I'd rather they send me their barrels and I'll bore and go in the barrels and then I know they're the right size, you know? And then they can get their own pistons? No, no, I supply the pistons, but I prefer, what I'm saying is I prefer to bore and hone the barrels for them. So send me your barrels, I'll bore and hone them, and then send you a set of pistons back with the bore and hone barrel, which are the right size. What about the rods in your motors? Do you make those or are they custom built for you? Have them made. There's a company in the UK. I use a lot of kind of high-end motorsport companies, so I have them made by a company called Arrow Precision. We forge them and machine them, and they're, they're works of art. They are beautiful things. Are they lighter and stronger than the original ones? They're stronger. They're no lighter, but they're they're considerably stronger. When you're doing the cranks, do you lighten them at all, or are you just polishing and balancing them? I can do, and I have done. Uh, it's it's. It's wanking rights, really. It doesn't make any difference. It's a good thing to tell your mates down the pub, but you know, the, these things are a bit dinosauric. So taking a couple of kilos, three kilos off the crank is is all right. As I say, it's good. It's good bragging rights, but 
doesn't it doesn't make much of a difference. I dynamically balance them all, which which does help immensely on some bikes, other bikes not so much, and that goes back to the the, the, the variation that was in them when they were made. Some respond really well, and it's, mm. it's entirely, and, and and others not so much because they were pretty much bang on from the factories. So if it's a bad one, it'll make a lot of difference. If it's a good one, it's not too much. Shakes like a shitting dog, they say. A bad one. <laughs> Shakes like a shitting. What are you? So you're sitting up there in the in the forest of Western Scotland. You're like going on Facebook, getting all these memes every day. <laughs> I don't go on Facebook. No, I'm kind of. I'm, I'm pretty. I'm pretty. Uh, pretty down on social media. I don't really. This is all. This is all pub talk, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, it's, um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't go on the, on the internet much. So you still have your 3CL, but that's not, that's in pieces, you said. A 3C, it was a, a 3C. Uh, a yeah, 3C, no, that's so. in bits. I've got a lovely old, a really nice, um, very early uh, 3C, which, how long about that? Um but I bought that as a wreck, sorted it out, and uh, I didn't actually ride my RGS since ever since I put that on the road. And the RGS you said has got a quarter of a million miles on it. Right, nothing wrong with it, um, but it's it just never got ridden since I put the three C on the road. I'm a very strong believer in only having one, uh, just have one old bike on the road at any given time. If you've got three or four or five, some customers have got half a dozen or a dozen of these things. What happens is you just end up riding the least broken one. And eventually that works itself out and you end up with a garage full of broken motorbikes. <laughs> so uh, which keeps you in business. So it's like a, it's a nice business. So I'm 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 a firm believer if you're gonna have a nice old bike, get it, work on it until it's dead right, and ride the wheels off. But you also have a GS for you know, if you're going traveling or touring a, a BMW GS. Hi, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the alien lights coming out and that. It's got hard boxes. We can go places and buy shit. It's, uh, yeah, it's a nice old thing. I do like them. I've, as I say, I've always had a BMW or some description of that place. They've got a certain charm. Is that because the Libertas were so unreliable you would just always worry about them or just you just like the idea of having the BMW? No, I just like them. No, the Libertas are dead reliable. I don't know. Or mine are, you know. <laughs> I've got no, um, they are, they're fine. They're kind of, they're that nice place between an old bike, you know, something you can always sit and have a pint and look at, and, and a modern bike. They're fast enough, the brakes work well, they handle nice. So they're in that, they're in that lovely place, you know, it's quite, it's, it's quite possible to run one as your kind of daily rider, if anybody does that anymore, I don't and my my Oliverda um was a right foot shift. Did they did they change them to conventional left foot shift at any point in their history? The, uh, well, the one twenty motors were left foot shift out of the box, and they did like a conversion kit in order to sell them in the states. I think in seventy five seventy six on the, the Americans demanded left foot gear change, so they so had they, like a crossover. Yeah, yeah. Change. But it was later on in 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 Europe when they when they went from it was on, not until they did the one twenties that they shifted over to the left. I know the, the one twenty engine is is kind of left foot shift out of the box. Okay. Um, the the earlier the, the earlier bikes were available, but it was like a, it was rods and linkages and stuff. 
So I suppose, I mean, for, for the majority of people, I mean, a lot of people don't know about Lavernas, but, you know, and when people don't know about Lavernas, the one that they always know about is the Jota. Yes. And what was so special about the Jota? Like, why did that become so iconic in the Laverda range? Nothing really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Give us some insight. It's like a lot of things. It's a cool name. You know, people like saying it. People like saying Jensen Interceptor or E-Type Jaguar or Force Turbo. Uh, it's just, it's a cool name. It rolls off the tongue. Uh, the bikes, the Jota was all right. It's a nice thing. It was iconic, whatever that means. Um, it, it was a nice thing, but it wasn't particularly special. It was just made of stuff out of the parts book. It wasn't, it wasn't some wild hot rod. Uh, but but it was... I think the, the name, the kind of faraway name, uh, the fact that it was the fastest motorbike in the world, it catches people's imagination and, and, and away you go. And all of a sudden it becomes an icon, you know? Do you remember how many Jotas they made? No idea. I've got no idea. I mean, There's probably more about now than they actually made. How does that work? Well, people put a sticker on it and call it a Jota, which is essentially oh, also... Um, yeah, so it's like 900 SS Ducatis and stuff that keep appearing. <laughs> uh, so I don't know how many they made. The, the, the factory weren't particularly good at keeping records. Um, they just made the motorbikes and it's it's a, it's a funny thing. I always say it makes them either really difficult or really easy to restore um, because there isn't, you know, I've, I've got an old uh, commando, let's like say, and Norton, any change, if they changed the washer that went behind the, the rear axle, that went in the big book, you know, from number such and such, we change this washer. And so to restore one of them, Perfectly, is dead easy. You can just refer back to the records of factory made them. The Lavardas, I think, they were built by what they with what they had, you know. So at the at the time, they, at the time, yeah. And when things changed, they didn't necessarily record it. So it's quite difficult because there was no there was no such thing as a Jota from the factory. Wasn't that a Slater Brothers creation by taking a three C and putting the bigger cams, rear sets? Pegs for your breathing. The, the first five or six of them were actually converted in, in Bromyard, and then they asked for the. As, as I said earlier, all the parts in the Jota come from the factory parts book. None of them were particularly special. The exhausts were made in the UK, but the rest of it's just out of the factory parts book. There's lots of sort of lore and stories about them spending days and days and days on the dyno, you know. Developing these bikes, and you think, well, that's I don't know what they were doing because all the settings are basically same as the ones that are in the book that came under the seat. So, <laughs> so you've seen all this repeatedly pulling to bits over the years, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they're I mean, all, I... they're much matchless, all, all the triples right up until the end are sort of much more matchless. They didn't, the factory didn't have a lot of money, I don't think, for making. A new thing every year, you know. So they, yeah, they, they whittled and honed what they had. Yeah, I, I guess I maybe should have said at the beginning of this. You know, this was this really unique um, coincidence. I bumped into you in Skiff Woods, about a mile from your house, without knowing you, and suddenly, next thing, I am invited back to see your etchings 
as you do when you meet a man in the woods with his dog, right? Well, I, you know, in a, in a lifetime, a kind of weird things happen, and that's a kind of, you know. But I got to say, I got to say, you know, from my perspective, Keith, you know, coming in and opening the door and just seeing this whole Laverda world, and you know, I don't know what was more strange—the fact that here's this, you know, big collection of Laverdas of every description possible, and it's such a rare brand or such a rare make of motorcycle. You know, for you to focus so heavily just into one, you know, one mark, I think, uh, you know, I, I just couldn't believe it. And then the fact that you, you live two miles from my sister's house, I've been by your house a dozen times and never met you. And then here we are. It was, it was quite a strange day out for me or remarkable. It's a funny old lot. It's a funny old lot because we sort of communicated previously by email. Yes, yes. I'd uh, asked you about engines. Well, aye. There's a, a funny old set of circumstances, that. Right. Well, you, because you have a few pretty trick. I mean, do you have a, some of the Libertas you've got in there? You've got Jotas, you've got RGSs. I mean, there's, walk us through some of the stuff you've got in there because these are things that, you know, these days, maybe you see them at a bike night once in a while or a show. I think there's a there is a 1200 gold frame black mirage at um Barber in the museum. But I and I think oh, an anniversary, be, yeah, the anniversary, yeah. And I think they've got a formula, Joe. They, they all came with a they all came with a lovely certificate from um Massimo Laverda thanking you for buying. Uh, thanking you for buying the bike. They come with a, a handwritten or a, a hand-signed thing. They also, unfortunately, all came with um, bad crankshafts. So I don't know if you're going to go back. A bit of a shame that, you know. Uh, they had a, they changed the centre main bearings from, from rollers to balls to try and basically get the mechanical noise of the engine down a wee bit. And again, they didn't have a great deal of money and I think they just let the customers do the development. So they, they kind of they failed quite quickly after purchase, which was a bit, a bit of a shame. What was the fix on that? Put one of the old cranks in. Uh, a warranty, but they, they were very good. I think the factory honoured it, and they would provide you with a with a, a new crankshaft um, to be fitted at a dealer of your choice when you bought the bike. It was kind of embarrassing for them, I think, really. Yeah, because my Laverda is technically. My Laverda, they call it a Slater Brothers Mirage. So it was a mirage, but they joterized it. But I don't think it was a very popular idea, was it? It didn't sell very many of them, did they? I don't think the bikes, the bikes weren't selling themselves. And, and it was, the Slater boys were, were cute. They knew if you give it a far away name, people will buy it. You know, if, if you just called it BSA DBD 34, you call it a gold star, all of a sudden everybody wants one, you know, and they, they kind of figured this out. Um, so the, the Mirage the, the, was another sort of Slater creation that came up with the, with the name for that because I guess the, the bikes weren't flying out the door by themselves. So you give it a, you give it a, give it a bit of mystique, I suppose, didn't you? Well, it's interesting that they call it a 1200 when it's actually, what, only 1116 cc. So that was a gross bit of exaggeration on the size too, right? Well, I think a lot of that went on in the 70s, didn't it? So that was just, it was fine. It's near well, enough. it did when I went to the disco. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go, you see. A pair of stocks down the front of your trousers and away you go. Um, <laughs> so it, was kind of, it, was, it was kind of like that, really, so. The, the thousands are nine nine eighty one, uh, and uh, the 
500 were 11 30 so they just kind of rounded it up yeah typical italian fashion right they call it call it a 1200 well i mean for for anybody who hasn't seen or heard one i mean i, I think for me i mean is there a more beautiful sound than a, a three-cylinder laverda on song well, there probably is, but no, you know. Not in your world, right? No, I mean, they are. They're, well, they're, no, my world, no. I mean, the sound of one disappearing the way down the road uh, is always a nice thing, you know. The sound of one coming past at great speed is always a nice thing. So they, they are evocative, you know. That is, I think that's probably one of the things that's... It, I've always liked the sound of motorbikes machinery uh, and, and the sound of them turned me on and still does, you know. One of these things, revving and pulling hard, does churn the guts. You know, they are mm. a, a fabulous thing. It's a visceral thing. You know, you, it's something you just don't get with a whizzy four cylinder. No, so, I mean, and they literally shake the ground too when they start up, don't they? I mean, they're they're quite quite loud. That depends who done the crank. Sorry, that depends who done the crank. Right. <laughs> that was that was a shameless pug for the Keith Nin crank balancing <laughs> advertisement. They. Did you see how we seamlessly transitioned to that? Now, had you done the crank, yeah, yes. shaking the ground. The ground would not shake, the pants would not fall off the girls. So what do you want? <laughs> well, Keith, um, I gotta tell you, it was it was really, really great to come and see, you know, so many Libertas in one place. I mean, the fact that you're so devoted to keeping these old old beasts running. Yeah. I'm kind of stuck with them, unfortunately. Well, not unfortunately, fortunately, unfortunately. I'm stuck with them. I do have I do enjoy working on other things, um, and I do find it it's it's quite. If you stick with one thing, you only know one thing, and it's good to see how other people done stuff that they can give you ideas of how to make what you're doing better. Mm. I, I'm kind of they've all ganged up on me all these old bikes. And I don't much get a chance to work on other things. So it, it's it's nice in one way, and it's kind of not so nice in another. I would, you know, I would like to work on other stuff, but I just don't have the time. So these bikes are coming to you from all over the UK. People are bringing them up from England. Do they actually just sort of bring them up to you, or are you just because you're not just presumably getting these in Scotland? No, no, they come. There's be a four dozen customers in Scotland, so they come from all over the UK, Europe, and here, there, and everywhere. Stuff comes to me from. So, so people will actually, people will send them to you from Europe. Yes. That's incredible. Because I like you said, I mean, there's just a handful of people left in the world really now working on these or no. What is this big myth about the crankshafts that only a handful of people can properly do the crankshafts? Is that is that myth or lore or made up by the people that do no, it? Well, I mean, there's, I don't know, if you're a reasonably competent engineer and you're prepared to spend a bit of time learning it and you're prepared to spend some time making jigs, they're not, they're not rocket surgery, as they say. They're, they're not. It's just a pressed together crankshaft. But because there's no key splines or location, it's like three um, two-stroke cranks, if you like, three little single-cylinder two-stroke cranks, all pressed together. But everyone's on a parallel interference, so there's no guarantee. There's there's an infinite number of ways to get one wrong, basically. So that's why that's why you really 
it's much more preferable to come to someone like you who's a specialist on these things to get them right. Well, it is, rather than having, you know, letting some guy have a go at it because they won't have a, a, a basin jig and they won't have a, you know, they're, they're, they're awkward. They're awkward to do. And there are a lot of things that are awkward if you take it to, like, a general menders, you know, like a successful busy engine menders isn't going to want to bother his arse with it because it's just a nuisance to do. So with a bit of luck, with a bit of luck, he'll give it back to you and say, I can't do that. But there's the odd one that'll have a go and you end up with these, you know, 170 degree crankshafts and things that are just not quite right, you know? Um, and then they end up at your house. Then they end up here. Yeah. And we, we, we put them all together, you know, Right, it's it's time consuming, and it's like it's like a lot of things. I do a bit of bevel Ducati work. They're they're okay, but you got to do everything dead right. If you don't do mm -hmm. everything dead right, it's not going to be a very nice engine. So there's no mystery to it. You just got to not stop until everything's right. Mm -hmm. And of course, you live in a beautiful part of the world. So do you, do you find yourself riding much in the summer? No, well, I have in the past couple of years because I've been building the shed, but I, you know, I do get out as much as I can. Scotland's a lovely place to ride a motorbike. England is now south of the border as fuck. It's just absolutely chock a block full. There's nowhere to really, you know, if you head up north from here, you can live. Right, well, you don't have all the speed cameras in Scotland yet, do you? We got speed cameras in Scotland, but we kind of all know where they all are. Um, right. So if you head up north, um, there was an awful lot of rebuilding done. There was an awful lot of road improvements done. Back when we were getting lots of money off Europe, there were some of the roads up there are just epic. So, yeah, I like to do as much riding as I can. And that's on the 3C now? That's on the 3C now, yeah. We've got up there. And, and, and you can get you, you can get these old things flat out up there, which is lovely. It's, it's, you, you can't. England's so congested now, it's very difficult. Yeah, what would be a top speed on a, a nicely fettled old Laverda? Well, a, a, a good triple, you should see 135, 140 mile an hour, a good one. So they are fast, you know, and it, that's a kind of, that, that's, you know, you've got to do 140 mile an hour in a modern Ducati or a Fireblade. It's just, it's just a number on the dial, you know. But when you're, um, you've got a 120 section, 18 inch rear tyre, that feels something. It's a, it's a, it's a thing, you know. You, you, you get off and you go like that. It's brilliant, <laughs> <laughs> and Do it you... never grows old. You know, it's just, it's such a, it's a, it's, it's a lovely thing. Getting one of these old things really galloping is, is, is nice. Do you upgrade suspension on yours when you're doing them? Yes. What's the, what's the trick for suspension on these old things? I've got some old Marazzotti's in a box. Uh, no, no, they are. Yeah, it's the best place for them. Uh, decent set of rear shocks. Um, I, I modify the dampers and the both Marzocchi's and Seriani's not so much. The early stuff, the Seriani stuff, is, is pretty good. A mm. set of progressive springs normally sorts them for the forks. Um, the Marzocchi stuff not so good, so we use a thing. It's called a cartridge emulator. Which is a, it's like a little shim stack you fit in the in the top of the damper, and that sorts them out. A lot of people go for expensive cartridge conversions and stuff, which is all right. But the 
forks are sticky by nature, you know, they're not bushed. So they're never going to work like a modern fork. So there's a nice compromise to be found, sort of a damp and damp, progressive spring, good set of shocks. And it just makes them ride a bit nicer. They were generally, uh, Italian cars were the same, caddies were the same, the, the harsh is buggery, which is nice in a flat, smooth circuit, but not a lot of comfort for the road. Right, as soon as they hit a bump, you feel it, yeah? Yeah, making them a bit more compliant is, is, is quite nice. If they don't beat you up, you know, it's, it makes them a lot more pleasant to ride. What about that clutch? I mean, that's a heavy old clutch on those things. Did they ever do anything to improve that? They, they well, not really, no. Just, you know, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> it's, it's quite funny. You know, you got, I, got, oh, I speak to a lot of people in there. They want a Jota because it's like a hairy-chested man's bike, and, you know. But they, do you think you could make the clutch a bit lighter on it? You know, what do you want? You know, what do you want? Is that, you know, is that what, that's why you have the shotgun by the door for those people, right? And, yes. <laughs> well, because, I mean, you talk about the Jota being the cult classic bike. I mean, I just remember as kids, do you remember Mark Williams? The Yes. Uh, I, I, I had a drink with Mark Williams on a couple of occasions. Was, uh, yeah, Did you? An interesting... Because of Laverne? Aye. Yeah, no, that was the subject of conversation. Because, I mean, I read him. He's a good bit older than me. So I read him in Bike Magazine, and he was like, like I want to be like him, you know? Well, do you, do you remember what his exact line was? <laughs> he said in Bike Magazine, we wanted to ride around endlessly on high-powered motorcycles and take more drugs than Keith Richards. <laughs> we were like, yeah, this guy's great. Do you know what I mean? And as an impressionable youth, I thought, well, there you go. We're singing from the same hymn sheet. So. I mean, it seemed like a really great goal, didn't it? Yes. I mean, what more would a young man want to do, right? Ride on endlessly on high-powered motorcycles and take more drugs than Keith Richards. It was perfect. Well, you can keep your head down and get a good job and all that sort of thing. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I guess Mark. I guess Mark Williams ended up doing jail time for. He did. He was taking. I did. He went to jail in America, as far as I understand. He was. He was taking his own advice a bit too literally. I think. So yeah, uh, wasn't it something to do with a heroin dealing and money and a girlfriend or something? It'd be a shame if it was speeding. Right, because I remember he resurfaced, like you know, years later, and. He was writing for some smaller publication, extolling the virtues of a K75 triple BMW. I thought, oh, no. What happened to him, you know? Jail time does to a man, maybe. I don't know. I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't blunder about in one space and time for your whole life, can you? So I think he's still writing. I've passed across a couple of times. I mean, riding a K75 triple, I mean, that's the motorcycle equivalent of basket weaving, really, isn't it? Kind of, yeah, kind of. Uh, yeah, they're in the similarity ends. It's a nice three-cylinder European bike, but, you know, they couldn't be more different. Yeah, it was interesting, because, I mean, definitely, uh, you know, our era, the Jota, really was quite the fearsome beast. And, of course, you know, what did they make horsepower? I mean, probably, what, 85 or something, 90, maybe? Yeah, 85, 90 horsepower, a good one will make it the bad news. Do you ever tune them up to get more horsepower, or do you just leave them stop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We can we can get easily over hundred horsepower quite reliably. You can get more, uh, 
chap down in Australia gets considerably more at them, but that's you're into sort of race bike only then. They're um they're not, not mechanically strong enough to contain that amount of power. So the, the engine itself is fundamentally not mechanically strong enough. You can make it make the power. Yeah. Um, but it's all gonna you have trouble getting rid of heat, you have trouble just stopping the whole thing from twisting and moving about. So there's a limit to how much power you really want to make with it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, you could turbocharge it and give it nitrous oxide and make 200 horsepower, maybe, but not for very long. It would all just <laughs> come undone, you know. Be scattered on the roads of Scotland, huh? Yes. No, it wouldn't. It just wouldn't. It's not somewhere where you could go. You know, you can go and buy, you, you could go and buy a bolt on turbo kit for a Hayabusa now. It gives you another, I think, 150 horsepower or something like mm. that. And you don't have to do anything to it. Nothing. Mm. You don't have to take the engine apart, you just bolt this turbo on and away it goes. There's that much redundancy, there's that much strength and rigidity in the engine that it just shrugs it off, you know, it's not, it's not an issue. Whereas if you did it with the Laverda, it would just, as I say, it would all just come unraveled. Yeah, they're fairly fragile beasts. Quick question, do you work on any twins, SFCs? Yeah, yeah no, the, the, the old 750 twins, I, I, I really like, I've got a, I've got a real... Yeah, but I really like them. They're a nice, solid, dependable old bus. They're a lovely, they've got a lovely solidity to them. They're quite nice. If you, if what is your favorite in that? Do you like, have you worked on an SFC or had one in your possession? I, own, I owned an SFC Electronica, which I rode the absolute wheels of. I took it to the continent two, two, three times and just, uh, I, ran track days and stuff. I just, yeah, I rode the wheels of it. It was a lovely thing. That was very fast. You know, I, I rebuilt it, but just as a standard, you know, it was just built the way the factory built it. And I was clocked at, I think, 142 miles an hour off my mate's GPS and his Mercedes car, which for an old 750 twin. Well, the SFC was the, that's the rarest of the 750 twins, right? Yes, ah, yeah, I had an electronica. With it. Wasn't that like a race only? It was an endurance racer. I mean, it was it was an endurance racer, and I think it, it, it was the uh, they won by attrition. Basically, they weren't the fastest bike out there, but they were TikTok reliable. They were comfy, and I think they just they, they kind of wore the opposition down. You know, for, for long long endurance races, they're great. There's a there is one Laverda that. It slipped my mind. Do you ever run across them on Duick? Yes. What was that all about? It was a it was a little high revving double overhead cam five hundred cc twin. It looked like a little mini Jota. All mouth and no trousers. That's the best way to describe it. They're great, you know. I, I, if if you and your mate have got them on Duick and you go out and tear up the lanes. Fast little bike, that right. Fast little bike. But if your mate's got like a four hundred Super Dream, you're <laughs> you're you kind of pedaling it to keep up. So they're all right. They're just, I, I mean, again, it's a sort of dealer special. So you paint it bright orange and put some loud exhaust pipes on it. Do you know if? And they can't have made a lot of them, right? Because it's like it, it's just like a even the engine cases and the cam covers and the motor. It all just looks like a very small Laverda Jota, right? Well, it's converted Alpina um, 
Alpino Alpina S. Uh, so again, it was a sort of a dealer special. And again, the, the untuned standard bikes are they're okay. They're, they're not. I've never liked 180 degree twins. They're a wee bit. Do you do you get to work on, or have you worked on Monduix and Alpinas? Do they show up from time to time? I've done a few. I, I don't. I get I get kind of frustrated with them because uh, it was a it was a clean sheet of paper. The engine was done by, you know, it was a clean sheet of paper. It's not like they, they converted a two-valve engine into a four-valve engine and they were constrained by stud spacing or whatever for, you know, for the layout of the top half of the engine. So there's just no excuse for the buggers model they made of it, really. It's 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 not great. They'd have been better off copying a Honda. Well, it's awful to think that a, a 400-wet dream was faster. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, not as loud and not as orange, and uh, uh, you know, so it was not perceived faster. But they're actually out on the road. They got the legs on the Montjuic. Yeah, I guess like you said, it was orange and it was loud. That was in, in a great advertising campaign. Uh, and then a cool little thing, you know, I, I do get one in the work on occasionally, and I, 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 I road test everything. Nothing just comes off the bench and goes home. So until I'm happy with it. It doesn't leave. So, you, and they're great wee things to ride. You know, they're, they're just after blundering about in these big triples for so long, they're light and they're flickable and they're, they've got their charms. But I, I just think it's a bit of a shame. The engine's not great. It's not a. It's it's not a masterpiece. Well, thanks a lot, Keith. I'm just going to hit the off button here. Really appreciate having you on, Keith Nairn, the Laverda Specialist. Oh, thank you.